Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Canon Institute's discussion, Victory Day and Russia's Politics of History. I'm Isabella Tabarovsky, and first and foremost, I'd like to say that we hope that you and your families are staying safe, and we're really delighted that you're able to join us in this latest of our virtual events. Before we begin, I'll make a quick announcement. Please visit our website for our upcoming events, including today's Ask Me Anything with the director of the Canon Institute, Matthew Lojansky, at 2 p.m. Looking further down the calendar, we have an event on the Russian independent media and its reporting of COVID-19 and how it is handling the current crisis. That will be next Thursday on May 12th. And on Wednesday, May 13th, we will have a discussion of the latest in the coronavirus situation in Russia and how it is handling it. Today's event is timed with upcoming commemorations of the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II or the Great Patriotic War as it is known in Russia. Victory Day, of course, is Russia's most prominent national holiday. It has become a cornerstone of the Kremlin's politics of history or politics of memory, as we also call it. On the official level, it is very much built around the glorification of Russia's military successes and the Russian people's heroism and victimhood. And from this perspective, the official May 9th commemorations are meant to symbolize a resurgent Russia. But Victory Day is also a point of confluence for unofficial and deeply held personal and family memories, as well as the memory of Stalin's terror. So this is a very complex, multi-layered subject, and I'm pleased that today we have an extraordinary panel to discuss it. Uh, before we move on, before I introduce our first speaker, I'd like to say that for today's event, we welcome your questions, and there are several ways in which you can submit them. You can do it via email to canon at wilsoncenter.org, via Twitter at Canon Institute, or you can do it on our Facebook page. Please include your name and affiliation when sending your questions. Our first speaker today is Larissa Deriglazova, professor at the Department of World Politics, head of the Center for European Studies, and head of master's degree program on EU studies at Tomsk State University in Russia. Professor Deriglazova focuses on international conflict and European Union studies. She is an alum of Canon Fulbright Fellowships. She has also collaborated with Oxford University and Kent University in the UK, Free University of Brussels in Belgium, University of Göttingen in Germany, and other universities. She has over 150 publications to her name, including Great Power, Small Wars, Asymmetric Conflicts since 1945. Larissa, the floor is yours. Okay, uh, dear colleagues and friends, I'm very happy to be part of this very distinguished panel and to discuss this very special day in the history of Russia and not only history of Russia, but also of the entire world. And I would like to say that 9th of May is a special day for today's Russia in several regards, and I would like to discuss why. And this understanding of this very special day for Russia, it would differs this country's Russia from the rest of the world. Uh, probably it is the least controversial uh, national holiday in Russia, which uh, actually rather unifies and splits the society. And many Russians agree on at least on two points in regard to this national holiday. First, that 9th of May uh, marks the victory day of a dangerous and ruthless invader. And the human price uh, for that victory was incredibly high. 
that it was a military victory uh, that had all the attributes and indicators. And powerful military enemies were defeated and the capitulation was uh, taken in the capital. So there is no doubt uh, that such victory would be possible without Soviet army. The victory came at very high human price. And in 1946, Stalin announced that human loss of the Soviet Union at the war was about 7 million lives. In 1961, Khrushchev admitted that probably it was a 20 million lost life in this war. During perestroika and recently, demographic loss of the total population of the Soviet Union during the war was estimated above 30 million, which takes more than 10% of the entire population of the country at that time. Among these lost lives, more than half were civilians, uh, those people who lived in war zones under occupation and they were in blockade, for example, as a citizens of St. Petersburg. Uh, which lost more than 700,000 lives in, during the blockade. Millions of soldiers uh, have been in concentration camp as prisoners of war. Some returned back, uh, many died, and those who returned back were often prosecuted by the Stalin state because they were treated as uh, traitors. Many soldiers were lost in the actions and never will find out about. Uh, there is some questions to be answered, and they probably raise controversy in Russian society still. Why the human cost of this war was so high? Uh, what was not done to prevent the occupation of so many territories and the loss of so many civilians in the war zones and outside of the war zone? Um, during the war, many Soviet people died also because of the policy of the Soviet state. It was a deportation of some people that were regarded to be dangerous uh, to the Soviet state, like Chechen, Ingush, or Volga Germans. Repression continued during the war, and it did not help uh, to bring victory closer. It was also... Um, it was also introduced very severe punishment for civilian population for the crimes against state property or a break of discipline during wartime. Millions of people were moved uh, from front line uh, to the evacuation and they returned back home only after the end of the war. And millions of people living in the front lines were at the labor force to substitute those men and who went to the front lines. Women and teenagers were doing the same job as men did in a peacetime. And they went to the coal mines, industrial production, military fabrics, etc. The provision for rear, far from front line, was not plenty, and starvation was the norm of life for the long years during the war and long years after the war was ended. Not any country in the world have lost so many lives of soldiers and civilians. In proportion loss, probably only Poland and Yugoslavia are close to the same rate. Certainly German, Germany lost many lives, but more soldiers than civilians, even the war was waged in the whole territory uh, at the end.
So almost each family in Russia or former Soviet Republic has their own story to tell about the war, about the war veterans, family member living under occupation of being killed, being in concentration camp or working hard uh, to bring the to bring the victory closer or even being prosecuted because they break some law of the war time. Uh, for the celebration of this um, of this day, there is a two meaning are uh, very important. It's a glory, uh, glorious part of the victory, and the memory about the lost lives. And these two sides of the day, I would call the two sides of the same victory medal. One side is shiny and glorious to be shown in the public, to be celebrated with military parades and uh, with joy. And another side is a rather privately kept. It's about drama, about trauma, about loss of relatives, and about those lives that never return back to the family. So this tragical experience of entire nation, which is hardship and determination with this trauma and victory, distinguished today Russian society from, for example, today's Americans, to whom exempt some exposure uh, to the war in Pacific and on the West Front, it was rather limited and very distant. The difference is even in the name of this war, as Isabel already pointed out. For American people, this is a World War II. For the Russian and many Soviet people, it is a great patriotic war because it was a clear invader. Many territories were occupied and, many, and millions of people died uh, against uh, this occupation and for survival. So this very personal understanding of the Victory Day beyond official ideology is recently was uh, manifest, uh, manifest itself in the initiative which received the name the Immortal Regiment. It originated from 2012 in Tomsk, even it was some efforts to bring the same experience before when uh, relatives of the war veterans or those who died in a war marched together in the mine, 9th of May, uh, May um, along the main streets carrying the portraits of their relatives who fought during the war to, uh, to commemorate this sacrifice. Very soon this initiative really captured millions of people and it became very popular and it also was taken by official in Russia. Uh, because of this immortal regiment movement, the Victory Days has received a new impetus from millions of Russians who keep family history alive and for whom it is not just about mil military victory and glory. People who take part in this march, they always say how moving it is, how it is emotional and how proud they are to keep their family history alive and to, to commemorate uh, this day together with other people. So in my mind, this um, immortal regiment movement somehow connects this glorious and shiny public um, side of the Victory Medal and the private uh, side of a very sad side of this day. This year's celebration ought to be uh, very big 
and actually the entire year uh, was uh, announced as the year of memory and glory. Because of the coronavirus pandemic, many, move, many events moved online and took a, a different shape. For example, Immortal Regiment will take online and it's now all Russia movement when relatives of uh, war veterans or those who participate in a war, they send the information uh, to site to be shown during the day as a parade. It's also there is a several initiative in Tomsk uh, which also with support of official or they were originated from people. It's like a volunteer visiting war veterans, bringing them some gifts uh, and even giving some concert music or a poetry reading. Uh, there is a, um, the competition under the name Unforgotten Lyrics, uh, when people videotape uh, them reading lyrics devoted to the war. Uh, there is also some other action, more of the glorious part, it's called the window of victory, when people decorate the windows of their houses and their flats uh, with some signs of the victory day. It also continues uh, the movement which took place for a long, the recovery of the lost names. Uh, for example, to finding whereabouts of those uh, soldiers uh, that were lost in action. And for example, uh, this year, Tomsk Polytechnic University announced that they found two names of uh, their students who were drafted to the war in 1942 and who died. What is interesting is that both both of these boys had their fathers been prosecuted in 37 during the repression. Uh, so to conclude, I would say that uh, 9th of May uh, has two expressions that probably have different meaning and different accentuation. For the political leaders, it is very essential to strike victorious part of this day while for the majority of Russians, it's a commemoration day of the very high human price that nation paid for liberation and probable for the mistake of taking war without precaution that it was. Nevertheless, the consensus exists in Russia, if not necessarily in another country, how to celebrate this day. And this is a topic uh, for historian and political science to continue this discussion and discovering of entire war and the history of it and every nation experience of this big war. Thank you. Thank you very much, Larissa, for this introduction. Our next speaker is Mina Tumarkin, Catherine Wasserman Davis Professor of Slavic Studies, Professor of History and Director of the Russian Area Studies Program at Wellesley College. Professor Tumarkin is a long-time long associate of Harvard University's Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies. She has a long-standing interest in the political uses of history, and her current book project explores the politics of the past in Putin's Russia. Professor Tumarkin's research has influenced top American political decision makers on both sides of the aisle, she served as an advisor to President Reagan, for whom she wrote two invited papers, and also served as one of six Soviet experts who briefed the president, vice president, and key cabinet members shortly before President Reagan's historic first meeting with Mikhail Gorbachev, which took place at the 1985 Geneva summit, 
1995, President Bill Clinton read her book, The Living and the Dead, The Rise and Fall of the Cult of World War II in Russia in preparation for his Victory Day visit to Moscow in 1995. Professor Tomarkin is also the author of Lenin Lives, The Lenin Cult in Soviet Russia. And before I pass the mic over to uh, Professor Tumarkin, a reminder that you can send your questions via email to canon at wilsoncenter.org, via Twitter at Canon Institute, or on our Facebook page. Please include your name and affiliation when sending the questions. Professor Tumarkin, please. Thank you, thank you. Um, the question now is, what was Russian war memory like and what has happened to it? The Soviet cult of the Great Patriotic War, launched at the start of the Brezhnev era and climaxing in the gargantuan observance of the 90, 1985-40th anniversary of the victory, was genuinely popular, but was also orchestrated by the authorities as a source of legitimacy in an era in which the myth of Lenin and the revolution had faded. Indeed, Nikita Khrushchev's revived and transmogrified cult of Lenin after the death of Stalin was proving to be a failure as a source of popular enthusiasm and political solidarity, um, as evidenced uh, by widespread jokes about Lenin and the Lenin cult during and after the 1970 centennial um, of his birth. Taking shape in the mid-1960s, when Victory Day, May 9th, was made a non-working day, uh, and the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier uh, made its solemn appearance uh, in Moscow's Alexander Gordon, uh, the cult of the Great Patriotic War, which exalted the Great Patriotic War, which is not the same as World War II. Let me just um, point that out. The Great Patriotic War dates from June 22nd, 19. 41 to May 9th, 1945, as opposed to World War II, uh, which dates from 1939 to 1945. Um, the uh, cult of the Great Patriotic War exalted really the Soviet Union's great legitimizing myth uh, with a salvational grand narrative of the Red Army's liberation of a world enslaved by Nazism, and it was celebrated in monuments, publications, works of literature and art, and civic rights throughout the USSR, as well as communist satellites. And as of 1975, the war cult played an ever-increasing role in the militarization of Soviet youth. Uh, the cult was arguably the last portion of the official Soviet canon to fall victim to the Glasnost campaign of the late Gorbachev era. Um, and in, in post-Soviet Russia in the 1990s, the Soviet cult of the Great Patriotic War eroded rapidly. Eternal flames at tens of thousands of war memorials were left to flicker out. Many veterans became reluctant to display their wartime medals in public for fear of being made the target of insults about their long-standing privileges, purported heroic posturing, and having fought in a war to save a system that ended up destroying itself and ruining the lives of tens of millions. Predictably, the 50th anniversary of the victory in 1995 was marked with some fanfare, including a parade showing off military hardware. This was on Paklona Gara Victory Hill, uh, in which a new museum had just uh, opened. 
Um, and it was not in Red Square, the military parade was not, because Bill Clinton had insisted that he would be in Red Square, but he would not win witness any kind of military parade. But a true cult of the Great Patriotic War was revived only after Vladimir Putin assumed the presidency. I would say in 2004, maybe even late 2003, in addition to the upcoming 60th anniversary of the victory in 2005, heated memory wars with the Baltic states and the aftermath of their admission to NATO and the European Union, as well as the 2004 Orange Revolution in Ukraine, intensified the Russian leap into war-driven memory campaigns. Idealized history took the place of a missing ideology. Tied to the USSR's unique and salvational role in defeating fascism, was an assertion that the victory had also been a moral victory, which gave and continued to give Russia the right to dictate policy to others. The 2008 Russia-Georgia war, the 2013-14 revolution in Kiev, the annexation of Crimea in 2014, and the subsequent and ongoing conflict in the Donbas solidified this martial turn which was especially um, in evidence in 2015, the year of the 70th anniversary of the victory on May 9th, which was because of the Crimean annexation boycotted by all the major Western leaders, except Serbia, although um, Angela Merkel did come and lay a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier the following day, but not on May 9th. The presidents of China and India were the only major leaders present and it's notable that last month, President Putin signed a law that moved the Russian commemoration of the end of World War II, the end of World War II, not the Great Patriotic War, from September 2nd, where it had been for over a decade and more, to September 3rd. Now, why? Well, two main reasons. First of all, to line up with the Chinese commemorate, commemorative date. That's the date, September 3rd, when China commemorates the end of World War II, and also to prepare a likely date for the postponed Victory Day commemoration that this year, of course, cannot happen on May 9th. The features of that 70th anniversary commemoration were very striking. Uh, there was a kind of Krim Nash, defiant jubilation, meaning Krim, Crimea is ours. Celebrating Crimea, displaying anger at the Western chat sanctions and the boycott, um, the Soviet Great Patriotic War had included a peace-loving component. The idea that never again should there be a war, but the USSR as a guardian of the peace, much like Japan, um, especially in Hiroshima, um, has this image of the guardian of the peace. But in 2015, all the talk of the need to guarantee peace was gone, and I actually saw bumper stickers, very disturbing, and signs that said, 1941 to 1945, we can do it again. Some of them actually um, with photographs of the White House um, or the Capitol building in Washington. Indeed, Russia's intensified militarism, particularly since the beginning of Putin's third term in 2012, coincided with the escalation of what I call a cult of the victory that was rapidly eclipsing the cult of the Great Patriotic War. Of the minute of silence on TV, which um, every year, uh, just at around seven o'clock, would show the flickering flame on the U.S. on, on the unknown soldier uh, tomb in Moscow, was reduced from ten to five minutes. Uh, in uh, 2017, on June 22nd, the anniversary of 
the invasion of 41. Moscow's Museum of the Great Patriotic War was renamed a Victory Museum. And perhaps this victory cult helps to explain Stalin's consistently high approval ratings um, in the polls. So I'd like to talk about uh, recent years, the changes um, in war memory that both simplify and complicate the war myth. myth. So there are striking um, new elements, particularly since this orgiastic and defensive 70th anniversary of the victory, um, in addition to the cult of the victory. And most evident has been the heroization or the official heroization of everyone who had fought in the war. Whatever happened to the idea that soldiers were thrown into battle because they had been forced to, or had chosen to fight for the motherland, and that a few standouts had been heroes, had accomplished heroic acts. Beginning with utterances by Vladimir Putin and rap rapidly moving into the realm of commonly accepted truths is the assurance that all the millions of fighters who portraits, whose portraits are borne aloft in the annual immortal regiment marches were heroes. And the same contention holds for the uh, uh, MIAs who are on, uh, on, from World War II or from Great Patriotic War um, unearthed by Russian searchers who now rum, number around 50,000 people. Every one of those um, remains is referred to as having belonged to people who had been heroes. Um, so every dead officer and soldier was a hero because each one had contributed to the victory. Um, and from the Volgograd 2015 website about the, uh, the upcoming 70th anniversary of the victory, people were invited uh, to join the Immortal Regiment um, if they cherish their, quote, victorious relatives um, and to uh, bring, take a photo of their hero. And right now, I just yesterday looked at the Immortal Regiment of Russia website. Uh, now, the Immortal Regiment of Russia was established in 2012 as a rival organization to the original Immortal Regiment organization that uh, began um, in the city of Tomsk, where, uh, where Larissa lives. Um, and in this website of the Immortal Regiment of Russia, which is very much linked to the Kremlin, um, people were told to uh, submit information about uh, for their Immortal Regiment online, at information about their hero, photo of their hero, everything's about the hero. Whereas the original um, Immortal Regiment website asked people to submit information about their veteran. So the heroic stance is particularly notable in official pronouncements. Another major and related change to the war cult, in addition to its partial or total eclipse by the cult of victory and the mass her heroization of its soldiery, is the recent explosion of micro-narratives, myriad micro-narratives, attached to the thousand of, thousands of found MIAs uh, by many search groups and the millions and millions of frontline fighters represented in the photo portraits car carried in the Immortal Regiment processions on Victory Day. The Immortal Regiment marches populate the landscape with new stories, um, or at least captioned photo port portraits each of which represents an individual story uh, to add to the narrative. So uh, all of this adds thousands and really millions of new stories to the mix, and this complicates and enriches the current war and victory um, narrative uh, and ritualization of war-driven memorial practices. 
Uh, and uh, in fact, the traditional war chronicle that depicted um, the major, the big five, the battles of Moscow, Stalingrad, Kursk, lifting of the Leningrad siege in Berlin, had become very tired. Um, the erasure of the individual in the interest of, of the collective was one of the negative features of the Soviet era war cult. So what better idea than to retain all those familiar iconic victories as a structural framework while infusing vast new energies into popular patriotic pride by these uh, additional elements with personal fates. Uh, and uh, there are also um, new rituals memorializing the war dead on January 27th, 2009, the 65th anniversary of the lifting of the Leningrad siege. A new civic memorial action was introduced into the Russian mnemonic practice called the Candle of Memory, um, where um, on the night of June 22nd, the day of the invasion, people um, would light candles in their windows um, and we're encouraged to photograph them and post them online with a, a, a particular hashtag. Um, and there's a new attention now also to the civilian, uh, civilian war dead. Um, there's every indication that the 75th anniversary of the victory in 2020 was to have been marked with enormous jubil jubilation and orgiastic fanfare. And as Lalisa mentioned, in 2019, Putin announced that 2020 would be known as the year of remembrance and glory. So how does the 75th anniversary of the victory commemoration look now during this pandemic? Well, watching Russian TV is utterly surreal. So if you go to Pierre Canal, Channel One, uh, the news looks very much like ours. The screen is filled with masked doctors and coronavirus stories. But they also managed to work in Victory Day. So yesterday, May 5th, there was a segment suddenly about the fact that the authorities are giving out millions of Georgian ribbons. These are the characteristic black and orange striped ribbons of victory that had originated actually in the reign of Catherine the Great, but um, really were transmogrified into symbols of the victory over Germany in 1945. So at checkout counters, so with every checkout counter, every, every purchase, you get the receipt and then you get a, a ribbon and also uh, delivered to, to veterans and other elderly, elderly people um, along with groceries delivered to them. Many TV miniseries set during the Great Patriotic, Patriotic War, you see this tremendous amount of activity online, attempts at fostering virtual patriotism via numerous online events, uh, particularly on the official 75th anniversary site, uh, May9th.ru. The plan for May 9th, which Belarus will celebrate as of old, by the way, with parents and immortal regiments, for actually May 9th in Russia, there will be an air show of planes and hectares, a morning speech by Putin on May 9th, afternoon concerts, all televised, of course, and online, a, a 6.55 minute of silence, followed ideally by people also singing um, the very, very popular song called Victory Day. Um, uh, people asked to display at 10 p.m. flashlights, lit flashlights in the windows, and images of cranes who are the symbols of the souls of dead soldiers. So it's a crazy juxtaposition of the thousands of dead who are victims of COVID-19 with the some 30 million dead 
who are the heroes of the great patriotic war. Thank you. Nina, thank you very much for this. And now we move to Professor Nikolai Koposov, who is a visiting scholar at Emory University. Professor Koposov's previous appointments include Georgia Institute of Technology and Johns Hopkins University, among others. In 1998, uh, from 1998 to 2009, he served as the founding dean of Smolny College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, a joint venture of St. Petersburg State University and Bard College. His academic interests include modern European intellectual history, historiography, and historical memory. He has authored six books, including Memory Wars, Memory Laws, Memory Wars, The Politics of the Past in Europe and in Russia. And as a reminder, once again, please submit your questions via email to canon at wilsoncenter.org, via Twitter at Canon Institute, or on our Facebook page. Please include your name and affiliation when sending questions. Professor Kopasov, please. Oh, thank, thank you very much. Do you hear me? Good. We can tell well, you. First of all, thank you for inviting me. I am very glad and proud to be part of this panel. And uh, let me uh, begin with an old Soviet joke, according to which prisoners in a Soviet camp, well, Soviet jokes are about Soviet life, right? Prisoners in the Soviet camp didn't have to tell each other anecdotes, jokes. Telling jokes is very Russian. They knew all jokes by heart. So the only way they could just uh, tell jokes to each other was just giving their numbers. Number 222, and everybody laughed. Number 15, everybody laughs, and so on. Now, when I am asked today uh, about my political ideas in Russia, I can use the same approach. Instead of saying, uh, what do I think about, for example, the leadership of the country, I can refer to an article of the Penal Code, uh, which forbids uh, slander against state officials. When I'm asked what I think about the Russian Orthodox Church, I can refer to another Penal Code article, which forbids uh, insults to religious feelings. When I'm asked what I think about the annexation of Crimea, I can refer to another article of the Penal Code, which forbids all calls for the disintegration of the country, all calls for somehow violating what they call territorial integrity of the country. And when I'm asked what I think about the Second World War or the Great Patriotic War, once again, there is an article in the Penal Code of the Russian Federation introduced in May 2014, just in the middle of the Ukraine crisis, Article 354.1, according to which spreading, disseminating, knowingly false information about the actions of the Soviet Union during the Second World War uh, is a uh, criminal offense. So what I'm going to do now is to spread uh, information about the Second World War, which is normally considered uh, knowingly false uh, in Russia. But before I will do that, uh, let me tell a family story. Larissa referred to family stories, each family has its own story. My family also has a story of the war. Well, 
it's applied to a big family, basically. No single person in this family suffered from the war, from the repressions. It's quite exceptional. But nobody was arrested. Nobody was even fired from, the, from his or her job. Uh, nobody participated in the war. Nobody felt victim of anything. I don't know how many such families are there in Russia, but mine is like that. My wife's family was decim really decimated by the war, every, by the repressions. Every second member of the family just disappeared in the gulag. Mine was not touched. But still, my father, who was a military doctor, was very, very proud of him being a veteran of the war. And I remember the 9th of May, every year in my family, was celebrated uh, as a kind of important uh, day. And when I was a child, I felt very strongly that all that was a shameful hypocrisy, because I knew the real story behind my father's participation in the war. My grandfather was also a medical doctor. And as soon as the war began, he made my father accepted to the military medical academy, which allowed him not to go to the front. My father finished by becoming an excellent doctor. He was really a great doctor. But he was a light-minded person, at least when he was younger. So he was not a great student of his first couple of years. He was expelled from the military academy. And he had to go to the front. But to be recruited to the Soviet Army, he had to go back from St. Petersburg, then Leningrad, where the academy was located, to Moscow, where my grandfather had connections. So what my grandfather did, he made my father adopted for the second time in the same military academy of medicine, so that the family, my father and his father, made everything possible to my father not to go to the front. And still in the family, the memory of the war was celebrated. And my father still called himself a veteran. I knew it was all false. Uh, my personal attitude to the cult of the Second World War is that it is shameless, shameful. Uh, every time you know, anybody tells me stories in Russia about how high the cost of the war was, how the important the role of the Soviet army in liberating the world, the entire world from this brown plague was. I'm just asking myself whether this person understands what really he's saying. Whether this person understands that this is what Mr. Putin wants him to believe. Because Mr. Putin wants, first and foremost, that the idea of the state was adopted, would be adopted by most of the Russians as a kind of core of the identity. The state is something which serves the people. In Russia, it's the exact opposite. The state is against the people. It is now against the people. It is one of the most anti-democratic regimes in the present day world. Uh, and it always was against the people. It was against the people under the Tsars, and it was even more so against the people under, this, under Stalin. And the cult of the war uh, about which Nina uh, writes a lot and uh, about which she gave an excellent presentation today uh, was and still is a means of imposing the cult of the state 
viewed as a something benevolent. The state will viewed as something benevolent to the people. Well, in reality, once again, the state was against the people and the state terrorized the people. And if the article to which I have already referred of the panel code of the Russian Federation today forbids disseminating any kind of uh, information which contradicts the official um, memory of the Second World War in Russia. The formulation of the article is very telling indeed. Dissemination of only false information about the activities of the USSR during the Second World War. Whatever you say about Mr. Stalin from 39 to 45, whatever bad you say about him, you go to jail. Three years. If you're a professional historian and mobilize some professional knowledge to do that, or if you do that, Using media, you go to jail for five years, in principle, yes. Uh, the cult of the war is indeed very much interiorized by many Russians. I agree with Larissa, I totally agree with Larissa, that it is a cult in which most Russians participate. This only says that most Russians are really lacking any kind of critical thinking and they allow the government to fool us there. Now, uh, if I may, I would add how, my, how, how I'm doing on time, Isabella, please. Um, I think you are okay. Yeah. yeah how much let's time? Say another, let's say another five minutes. Another five that's minutes, okay. so that's mm -hmm. fine, I'm fine with that. So, um, well, Larissa, also said that one of the reasons why the cult of the war, the myth of the war, is uh, so much uh, interiorized by most Russians is that it was clear who was the invader. Well, uh, it wasn't clear who was the invader in 1941. It was even less clear who was the invader in 1939. What should Pulse, for example, think about who was the invader. Well, of course, Hitler's Germany attacked Poland on September 1st, 1939. Of course, Mr. Stalin waited did, until September 17th, 1939. Well, uh, the Polish army by then, that time was already crushed by the Germans. So the part of the work that Hitler's ally, Comrade Stalin, had to do was not that Great, but the Russians invaded. And that was the beginning of the Second World War, the joint invasion of Poland by Hitler and Stalin. This is a criminal offense in Russia, saying that. Uh, <clears throat> now, um, this true that uh, military losses of the Russian army was really great. We don't know how many Russians exactly perished during the war, how many military and civilian casualties were there. The conventional numbers uh, are huge, but the proportion of military versus civilian victims is very, really very uncertain. Uh, the most conventional number would be 27 million deaths. Uh, about a half of them civilian deaths and about a half of them military deaths. Which brings us to something like 13.5 or around 
million of Soviet soldiers who died during the Second World War. Uh, let's compare that with the data about the German losses. All in all, German military casualties were 4.2 million people, people, soldiers, out of which uh, 2.8 million died, perished in the Eastern Front. So 13.5 versus 2.8, which means that nobody counted those victims on the Soviet side. And that's very well known. The Soviet leadership was extremely uh, indifferent with regard to the losses of the population, including the losses of the army. On the Eastern Front, and 1.2, if I'm not mistaken, million Russian soldiers executed as traitors. Uh, all this shows, on the one hand, how unprofessional and inhumane Soviet military command was, and on the other hand, that Russian soldiers were not very much willing to die for their fatherland. The case of my father who could escape going to the front was quite unique family connections. But most people could not. They were sent to the front. They didn't want necessarily to struggle for Comrade Stalin, especially given that most Russian soldiers were recruited from the villages, from Russian villages, the former peasants. And in the peasant experience of the Soviet people, uh, the central event was, of course, the collectivization of the Soviet agriculture, which also cost, we don't know exactly how many million lives, but including the Holodomor, the artificial famine organized by Stalin to somehow overcome the peasants' resistance to the collectivization in 1932-33, the overall number of deaths uh, which followed from the collectivization could be as high as six to seven or even eight million people. Of course, the peasants didn't want to struggle for the government, which just had treated them like that a few years ago. Uh, it, one of the rare and very knowledgeable and professional um, contemporary Russian historians of the Second World War, Mark Salonin, asks a question in one of his books, when did the Great Patriotic War really begin? And the Great Patriotic War, according to him, began only somewhere around the Stalingrad victory. Because during the first year and a half of the war, the Russians really didn't want to choose, most Russians didn't want to choose between Stalin and Hitler. Only when they realized that the German occupation was in no way better and even worse in many respects than the communist rule. And only when they saw that in this conflict between Stalin and Hitler, Stalin was very likely to come out as a winner. Only then a kind of uh, change occurred in the mass perception of the war. Only then most Russians began believing that they were fighting for uh, their country's freedom not necessarily before. So the story of the war, the real story of the war, and of course I have just emphasized the part of the story which is not part of the official narrative. Of course I am not meaning, willing to say that there was no Stalingrad, that there was no um, other Stalin's victories and so on and so forth. 
but there were also more than one million German and Polish women raped by the Red Army. And there were military crimes committed by the Red Army, which never went to anything like the military trib tribunal at, in Nuremberg. So Stalin's regime was almost as criminal as the Hitler regime, almost, not exactly, but almost. And the war was between the two criminal regimes. And if until now, most of the Russians don't realize that it was not only, and not maybe essentially a war for their freedom, but was largely a battle between the two dictators. And under no one of them, they could have and would have any kind of political freedom, any kind of economic prosperity and so on. If nowadays most Russians do not see that, don't understand that, obviously the government for whom its legitimacy is based on the memory of the glory of the war has had to forbid alternative interpretations of the war. Well, that's basically my point. Thank you very much, Nikolai. And first I want to ask the panelists, actually, if any of you have comments on what others have said. If anyone would like to comment, please feel free to do so. Okay. Larissa, please go ahead. Larissa, please unmute yourself. Okay. Do you hear me? Yes. Yes. Actually, I want just um, to give two very short comments. Then uh, when I talk about um, this private and family stories about uh, the great patriotic war or the big war or whatever you say i have in my family also stories of my grandfather who fought in a war and his two brothers died in a war and he was from a family who were under collectivization actually and when he was in a war my grandma was with two kids uh, in her arms. My mom born in 39 and my uncle born in 41. And uh, my grandfather returned back only in 46 uh, when <laughs> his wife had to survive all these long years with these two small kids. But what I want to say is that when I talk about uh, the name of uh, the war and the meaning for the family stories, I just uh, want to say that uh, what I also know from many families in Russia that uh, war veterans normally they do not glorify the war. For example, my grandfather never talked about war as something glorious, whatever. He preferred not to talk about it at all. And it's also, I know that for many families in Russia, it's the same. People go to the cemetery to commemorate those who died, but not to parade or whatever. So this is a tradition in St. Petersburg and many families and in any other many uh, families in Russia. So I would like to somehow to make a point that beyond myth, and glorification and official propaganda. This is a reality. It was a reality. This war was a reality and a trauma uh, for many millions of uh, families, 
in Russia. Of course, you could compare if the Hitler was better than Stalin or Stalin was not so cruel, but you could not deny so many civilians killed just because they lived in occupied zones and Holocaust took place in Western Ukraine and Belarus. And also, it was not only two dictators who fought each other. I have to remind that during occupation, it was troops um, in Soviet land from Hungary, from Romania, from Italy, and others. It was not just Stalin and Hitler, it was much bigger. And for me, it was a striking thing that in 2002, I was in a conference in Oxford University, and I heard uh, Timothy Garton Ash, a very known uh, British um, a journalist and political scientist who said uh, very, I would say, for me it was something amazing when he said it and somehow shocking. He said, talking to some French colleagues that would divide France and Great Britain it's the experience in this war. And for me, it was very shocking to hear that, for example, for Brits who fought the war from the very beginning to the very end, they experience different from the, for example, from the French people who were occupied and some of them were actually collaborating with um, Hitler. So this is uh, just not to simplify the history and not just bringing entire war experience just to the perception and glorification on official ideology. I'm historian also and um, I I do understand what's going on in political discourse on the first channel etc etc but um, I understand, but I think also many people understand. And this is why it's so important that historian, historians in Russia and outside of it brings a more complicated and true history of war as not glorious event, but as traumatic, very controversial with all this, not just heroes, but traitors who turn to be heroes or heroes turn to be traitors the civilian's life lost with no any reason, etc., etc. So this is my two points. Thank you. Thank you, Larissa. And uh, Nina, please go ahead. Thank you for, um, for your excellent uh, presentations. Um, I'd like to um, respond to both of what Larissa and Nikolai have been saying. First of all, um, yes, of course, the war was not only a trauma, but it's important to remember that it was a trauma that followed decade, a decade at least, of other traumas. So, uh, if, if, uh, so it followed the forced collectivization of the peasantry beginning in 1929, in which millions of people, after which millions of people died. And then this, the Stalin, the horror of Stalinism um, and the Gulag, and then the, the purge of the officer corps um, and, and so much else. Uh, famine also that followed the uh, collectivization. So uh, it seems to me that if one can take the condition called um, uh, uh, PTSD, 
of a traumatic stress syndrome, post-traumatic stress syndrome, and apply it to an entire country, um, I would say that the Soviet Union was such a country. So it's important to keep um, that in mind. Of course, I agree with Nikolai um, that there was so much that was criminal about the way that uh, the Soviet the Union prosecuted the war um, and threw hundreds of thousands of unprepared um, youngsters into battle um, and so much else. And that was something that was very, sort of an ironic point, particularly during the Soviet war cult, because its motto was, no one is forgotten, nothing is forgotten. But in fact, so much was forgotten. The penal battalions, um, that were made to uh, punish uh, so-called offenders, um, the Nazi-Soviet Pact of 1939, the Katyn massacre in Poland, um, and so much else. So there was this kind of um, irony. Um, and I agree, I understand with um, when, when Nikolai is talking about the cult itself as being, I suppose, both shameful and shameless. Um, but it's important to understand um, what, some of the reasons that people find it so attractive. It's, it's, it's not just because they love the idea that it was a powerful, effective state that um, conquered um, Nazi Germany. Um, there, I think that in a sense, May 9th is a way to go back for a day to the USSR of the 1970s and early 80s that people look back on if they look back on the Soviet Union with nostalgia. Nobody wants a return of the Stalin period, um, but they look back on that period. So they're, if they think back, they think back not so much to the war as to the uh, Soviet celebration of the war, um, which was quite jubilant. Um, and to add to the jubilation, and this is a response in part to Larissa's talk about the focus um, on the trauma and focus um, on the tragedy, um, I think it's important to note that for many of the people, maybe most of them, who march in the immortal regiment marches, and there are tens of millions of them um, in Russia and actually throughout the world, um, most of them uh, are carrying portraits perhaps of their great-grandfathers or great-grandmothers um, uh, and so, and there's so few veterans left, and they didn't know their great grandfathers, great uh, great grandparents. So, uh, I think that perhaps the mourning aspect really is attenuated um, at this stage. Um, but the regime doesn't want that to happen. They want. I, I think there's another piece actually of what's been going on in in the current official war cult, which is actually an attempt to celebrate the war dead because uh, the Kremlin understands very well that the dead are here to stay, whereas the, whereas the veterans are pretty much gone. And just last year, July of 2019, um, President, uh, Prime Minister Medvedev signed a decree called uh, the perpetuation of the memory of defenders of the fatherland for 2019-2024 highlighting the significance of military cemeteries and burial grounds um, and, and uh, putting in a lot of money into restoring them. And the thrust of the decree, which covers, covers the final five years of Vladimir Putin's fourth presidential, is meant to be leave a legacy far into the future. 
um, uh, the veterans are gone and they represent a sacralized generation that the state cannot maintain as though they were somehow still with us, as Owens and Malmers had been able to do with the author of Bolshevism in 1924. Um, and only searchers and immortal regiment celebrants can flicker them to life at hallowed moments. So the war dead will have to serve in the future, the 80th, the 85th anniversary of the victory, um, will have to serve the state and the people as the occupants of grave sites and military seminars, cemeteries, through which their aggregate heroism can continue to be tapped by the Kremlin um, through time as an effective source of patriotic pride and inspiration. Thank you, Nina. So I want to ask you, um, uh, I want to ask the panel a question and any one of you can take it um, however you choose it. I think one of the things that is quite apparent when we look at the Russian memory of World War II versus let's say Western collective memory of World War II is that the Holocaust, for example, occupies a really prominent part in Western memory, in Western meaning in Western European memory and in American memory as well. In Russia, of course, it wasn't for decades. Um, but then fairly recently, we see it emerging into public discourse. And most recently, uh, Putin visited Jerusalem where he, there was a very elaborate presentation. Um, and it's hard to, avoid a sense that there is a certain instrumentalization of, of the Holocaust theme that's going on. So on the one hand, yes, it's wonderful that it, it is now being brought back and incorporated into the memory of those events. But, but yes, it's, there seems to be an, an aspect of instrumentalization. So I wonder if you could um, address the subject, whoever wants to start. Nina, go ahead. Uh, I would, I would say that there is now a particular interest, actually, um, in uh, commemorating the Holocaust less as the Holocaust and more as a new attention to the civilian victims of the war. Um, there's a new, um, there's a new uh, initiative called Biestroka Davnosti, No Statute of Limitations, to disseminate historical information about the crimes of the Nazis and their collaborators in occupied territories. So Ukrainian collaborators, as well as those from Baltic states figure prominently here. Um, and now there's, there, are, there are sort of ideas that, uh, that the Holocaust should be commemorated, but I think in the context of previously unknown pages of the war, that is to say millions and millions of additional tragic victims to be to be celebrated. So it's, I think it's a pretty murky and um, sensitive subject, of course. Um, during the Soviet period, um, the, the Holocaust was barely mentioned because of the kind of comparative com competition of the numbers of victims and who was the most victimized. So if the Soviets you know, had lost 20 million and the, and the cost killed only 6 million Jews, the USSR comes out the winner. Well, I don't want to say anything else. Nikolai? Yeah, if I may. Um, he, yes, of course, you are exactly right, Isabel, saying that the memory of the Holocaust 
uh, has received some attention, uh, at least much more attention than it used to uh, during the last few years. And you're equally right uh, emphasizing that uh, there is, um, of course, a kind of instrumentalization of the memory of the Holocaust going on in Russia. It's interesting that uh, a real change uh, in so far as the degree of attention towards the Holocaust is concerned in Russia occurred in 2015. And that was exactly the same year to which Nina referred when uh, aggressive militaristic aspects of the historical propaganda linked to the war uh, clearly appeared in Russia as well. So on the one hand, we can repeat, we can beat you again, and on the other hand, oh, finally, those victims of the Holocaust. Already that shows to what extent uh, the Holocaust uh, is just a part of um, uh, Putin's propaganda, uh, which is always addressed to certain target groups. And this is quite essential uh, because we know that um, post-Soviet Russia and especially recent um, current Russian regime has excellent relationship with Israel. And as part of this Russian pro-Israeli stand on international arena, uh, it's normal to make some gestures to show that uh, the memory of the Holocaust is cherished in Russia, which it is not. Uh, at the same time, let me also uh, try to uh, somehow examine this issue in a somewhat broader context. Uh, the memory of the Holocaust became central to American and Western, West European memory relatively late not much earlier than the 1970s and 1980s. And this emphasis on the memory of the Holocaust and the memory of victims, and most importantly, on the participation of most peoples of Europe in the extermination of the Jews, not only of Hitler and a small group of people around him, but to some extent Poles, to some extent Ukrainians, to some extent French, to some extent the Dutch, and so on and so forth. Most peoples of Europe participated to some extent in the Holocaust. And the memory of the Holocaust basically meant we are sorry. We did that. Not only you were bad, Germans, Hitler, and so on, but we also were not excellent at all. And we apologize for that. So it was a kind of uh, um, self accusation, uh, repentance, confession of th sins, whatever you call that. And this way of commemorating the war came to replace post-war patriotic uh, self-congratulating myths, which were typical of the 1950s and 1960s. This self-congratulating myth in which we are heroes, not co-perpetrators, is still uh, very much present in Russia, which means that kind of nationalistic memory uh, based on a self-congratulating national narrative 
is still the core of history politics in Russia, and it is no longer the core of history politics in democratic countries. Now, uh, it's of course hard to live with uh, a kind of very negative view of your own history. It's difficult when your national narrative uh, presents as a kind of criminal chronicle. We did that bad, we did that bad, we did that bad, everything is bad, we are just guilty. And of course, there should be a kind of recompense for that. There is a need for a more positive view, more positive attitude to national traditions. And also in the 1970s and 1980s, parallel to the rise of the memory of the Holocaust, they emerged a cult of national heritage, a kind of pride for your own culture, Western culture in general, human culture in general, or your national culture. And the combination of the self-repentance for political crimes and the pride for your cultural achievements until now characterizes Western democrat, more or less democratic model of memory. Now in the 1990s, when as Nina rightly said, the culture of the war lost a lot of its ground in Russian public opinion, Boris Yeltsin tried to primarily this memory of Russian culture. Pushkin, the cult of Pushkin, which was always strong in Russia, became one of the foundations of national identity politics under Yeltsin. And sociological polls of the time show that most Russians were really agree that Russian culture is a matter, can be a matter of pride for the country. Now, when Putin came, he switched completely the direction of polit politics of memory. The culture is, of course, here, but the choice that Putin had to make and he made was between either culture or war as the foundation of national identity. And he opted for the war unambiguously. War, not Pushkin, unknown soldiers, not the glory of the you know, Russian imperial court and so on. Of course, he has nothing against Russian imperial court either. But by and large, the choice between a kind of cosmopolitan uh, pride of your cultural achievements and esteem towards other people's cultural achievements as well and so on, or the war in which we were winner, the winners. That was the choice. And uh, the cult of the Holocaust in the West uh, is a kind of negation, if you want, of the Putin story of the war in Russia. So if Putin's uh, propagandists now integrate some elements of the Holocaust, of the memory of the Holocaust, in the official conception of the war, it's just manipulation. Thank you, Nikolai. Larissa, did you want to add some, anything on this subject? All right. Um, I'd say that uh, I would agree with Nikolai that uh, Holocaust, the, you know, this more attention paid by the political leaders in Russia toward Holocaust issue, of course, it's somehow um, another way of using history for the political purpose and just being friendly with those governments that are friendly uh, to Russia and to use the agenda in supportive way. So I would completely agree on this. Uh, but um, what I would like to actually to address the issue of a broader problem 
for historians in all countries, not only in Russia, but definitely for many European countries about instrumentalization of history and how entire experience of war is read, is kept, it's celebrated, it's mourned, or how it's discussed. For example, we know that in uh, Holocaust became a cornerstone for this uh, memory, traumatic memory of the World War II. But there is also a glorious story of this war in Europe. It's about that European countries has won fascism and they built up the European Union. Still, after 2004, when many Eastern European countries or countries of Central uh, Europe joined European Union, they brought into another agenda about communism and fascism being the same. So somehow these two narratives, they clashed within the European Union uh, politics of memory because it somehow forced many, for example, social democratic party or those of the left side being more critical of entire agenda of socialism idea or a social agenda, which are very strong, for example, in, a Western, in Western European countries or in Scandinavian. So I just wonder, when we talk so much about how Russian political class instrumentalize history, how we can address this issue in a broader sense, not just uh, stigmatize uh, Mr. Putin, but just looking at another examples of doing the same with history for different political agenda. So how you would uh, address this issue? How would you advise historian and people in general and political leader how to choose some positive part of their history to be something, to be proud of something and to keep in agenda, to keep in education and also in the public those sides that they are shameful not only for the countries that you fought against, but also for your own country. I think this is a really excellent point that you raise, Larissa. And uh, certainly we know, Nikolai, you, you have the book, Memory Laws, Memory Wars. I wonder if maybe both you and Nina could address the question of how, how should, you know, the, in the entire region, uh, Countries, governments are busy reviewing, revising, revisioning history. How, what is, is there a right approach? Is there sort of a state of the art way of doing it? Here is how you craft a, an appropriate national memory, or here's how you present it in, in schools. What is, how do we deal with that? Uh, well, if I may, um... You know, I'm a little cautious about seeing that everybody is, does about the same. Uh, you know, we share something like 97% of genes with chimps. 3% make a difference. Uh, democratic governments also have politics of history. I can hardly imagine a society 
in the real world that would not have one. The trouble is that while we all obey laws and have policemen and have governments and pay taxes and uh, doesn't mean that all policemen, all governments, all taxations are equally in the interest of the people and so on and so forth. There are more or less democratic governments and there is no single ideal democracy in the world. And uh, the politics of history that is pursued typically by most Western governments, I guess is far more democratic than the politics of history pursued not only by the Russian government, but also by many East European governments as well. In Eastern Europe, especially in countries like Poland, for example, but also Ukraine and the Baltic countries, uh, history is often used as, mean, as a means of nationalistic mobilization in the same way as it used to be used in Western Europe throughout most of its history, but basically until the 1970s. Uh, the recent Polish uh, so-called Holocaust law of January 2018, which was fortunately uh, repealed at least the most um, unacceptable uh, provision of the law was repealed uh, a few months later. That law also forbade uh, any kind of criticism with regard to uh, Polish nation and Polish state, uh, the criticism of the participation of the Holocaust. Although it's well known, and there is a great deal of historical research that demonstrates that, that uh, Polish elites, local elites most often, uh, participate in the extermination of the Jews in the so-called Aryan areas. Uh, still the law for a while, for four months when which was in action, enforced, um, forbade uh, accusing the Polish people of that. That was not a good law either. And this kind of uh, ways which uh, not only openly manipulate the history, but limit the freedom of expression with regard to history, are being used in uh, Western countries, most typically, to forbid saying that our government was bad at the moment. And in Eastern Europe and in Russia, those laws are used to say, to mean something different. They used to uh, prohibit not accusations against your own people and government. Uh, not, I'm sorry, they are used not to prohibit defending your own um, um, content your own people from accusations about participating in the Holocaust. The laws in Eastern Europe and in Russia in particular are used to forbid this criticism. These are two very diametrically opposed kinds of uh, history politics. Thank you, Nikolai. And I want to ask a question from the audience. I think maybe I will direct it to Nina because she, um, she spoke about it a little bit. So this is a question from, um, so this, quest, this is a question from Ambassador Marie Selga, Embassy of the Republic of Latvia to the United States, who is asking why is it that it actually took so long for the Soviet Union to introduce Victory Day as a, as a national holiday, which was a, a non-working day, an actual um, 
a day with, that people were meant to celebrate. He, said, he writes, interestingly enough, Victory Day in, Soviet, in the Soviet Union as a holiday was introduced in many Soviet republics between 1946 and 1950, but it only became a non-working day in, the Ukraine, in Ukraine in 1963, in Russia in 1965. What happened during those 20 or so years? Why Victory? Why was Victory Day not celebrated during Stalin's or Khrushchev's time? Uh, thank you. Yes. Uh, actually, Victory Day was a non-working day. Well, certainly, of course, in 1945, it was a, it was a very great jubilation, jubilation. And in 1946, it was demoted to a non-working day in 1947 um, under, of course, um, Stalin. Uh, and Stalin did not want the war to be remembered. I mean, he understood very well that he was that he was responsible for the devastating um, consequences of the unpreparedness of his country for war in 1941 um, and for the many more millions of deaths than he was willing um, to recognize uh, for the Nazi Soviet pact. He also didn't like the fact that the cult of the, that the incipient kind of initiative of the war was also celebrating other generals. So particularly Marshal Zhukov, uh, Rakovsovsky and others, he didn't like that competition. Um, and so I believe, and, and times were so hard. So um, I, I believe that it was uh, because Stalin wanted um, as little said about the war as possible, um, that there was no um, celebration of the war. Um, military memoirs, which had begun to be published um, just after the war were stopped pretty much. Um, and none of this really picked up until the period of Khrushchev and why Nikita Khrushchev didn't move straight to um, a celebration of the war. I believe that was uh, because in 1956 in his secret speech, uh, he had uh, revived a really transmogrified uh, cult of Lenin that had not been in place uh, during the Stalin cult. The original cult of Lenin that was eclipsed by the Stalin cult had been a cult of mourning um, for the dead leader. He wanted a much more major key and a celebration and a celebration of communism and of the Bolshevik revolution, even as there were um, aims to uh, have communism spread into many parts of the globe after the Chinese revolution, Soviet advisors going all over the world. Um, so uh, I think he was really wanted to celebrate particularly um, the revolution and communism, which was supposed to spread all over the world. And it wasn't until his oust, just af after his ouster, that things changed. Thank you very much. And then we have a couple of questions. There's actually a number of questions that have come in about the dynamic between uh, the commemoration having been being driven, commemoration of, um, of Victory Day being driven from the top down versus from the bottom up. Um, Katie Stallard Blanchett, who is a Woodrow Wilson fellow, has asked that question and uh, kind of putting a sharper focus on it. Um, Catherine Schuler, professor at the University of Maryland, is asking, can you speak to critics of the Immortal Regiment who argue that not only has the Kremlin taken it over, but also turned it into some kind of theatricalized circus that now characterizes much of the Victory Day celebration. And I think that 
several of you have addressed it in different ways, how this is a confluence of different narratives and different approaches, but I wonder if you can maybe speak a little bit with a sharper focus toward that. What, what is it more of in the contemporary Victory Day celebrations? Is it more driven from the top down or is it from the bottom up? Or is perhaps the grassroots is, is independent from the top and they, as Larissa said, they go to cemeteries and they think of their dead and their loved ones and their own traumatic experiences. Who would like to start? Uh, Larissa, may I? Please. Mm -hmm. please, go ahead. Uh, certainly, the Immortal Regiment was a uh, bottom-up, uh, bottom initiative, uh, which was uh, very uh, fast taken from a top because it uh, appeared on the right time and it looked like a very genius and very natural expression, sincere expression, and many millions of people supported it. But very soon it became really instrumentalized when, for example, kids in the schools and even in the kindergarten, they had an assignment to bring uh, the pictures of their relatives. It's appeared some, uh, so the originally it was printed for free, all these portraits and um, preparation, but now it's a, like a market of this service. So some small firms, they produce these portraits. And uh, so it somehow, as soon as it became like an all national movement and supported from above, Putin walked in this immortal regiment uh, with a portrait of his uh, grandfather. So all this became very, very top uh, down. And there is a lot of also, I would say, more official driven and uh, still, uh, there is a lot of this, but still, People, uh, I talk to people who participate in these parades, they, many of them still feel that it's something important to them and has nothing to do with this official approval or demonstrating loyalty or being patriotic. It's about their own family histories. Probably it's a people uh, in their 70s, 60s, 50s, not the very young one, but this feeling of being not loyal, but rather being sincere and true to their own family history still exists. Thank you, Larissa. Anybody else would like to add? Please, Nina, go ahead. I would say that uh, myself, having participated in the 2015 and 2016 Immortal Regiment marches in Moscow, there's a sense of absolute jubilation um, and a defiance of other counter narratives. Nikolai, I was very glad he brought up the counter narratives um, coming out of Eastern and Central Europe, um, the Baltic states. Uh, that uh, denigrate in many ways, as far as uh, the Russians are concerned, the, the Soviet performance um, in the war and see no difference between, between Hitler and Stalin. And I remember the first time when I marched in 2015, um, I asked a woman, just the first woman I asked, you know, why are you here? And she said, and, oh, I didn't ask it, lest I have an American accent in Russian. I had a Russian friend who asked it for me, why are you here? And she said, because I want to show that it, we want to show that it's our victory. The Americans say it's their victory, but they just came in at the last minute in 1944. It's our victory. 
Um, and so that sense of pride in a victory and the sense that there, are, there is fake news <laughs> that gives the wrong history and has to be corrected, I think is, is, very, uh, is very important. There's a kind of indignation about that and an absolute celebration and jubilation of what really is supposed to belong actually interesting to Russia, even though, of course, people from the entire Soviet Union um, actually achieved that victory, as well as other countries. Nina, thank you so much. And this is unfortunately all the time that we have. This is obviously a really complex issue and we'll keep talking about it, we'll keep writing about it, and I hope you'll stay with us. And many, many thanks to our excellent panelists. Have a wonderful day, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody.